if you're an Intelligence Fusion mailing list subscriber, you'll know that we've changed up the structure of what was formerly Insight Weekly. Instead of now releasing podcast episodes every week, we'll now be moving to every two weeks. We want to provide you with deeper insight, more comprehensive analysis on wider trends, evolving patterns and unexplored themes across the globe. Future episodes are likely to be a little bit longer in length and therefore we'll need a little bit more research on our end. We'll still be providing a weekly email that'll give you a rundown of the global security landscape, highlighting key incidents and significant developments that have happened in the last seven days. Just make sure you're subscribed to the Intelligence Fusion mailing list to receive it. I'll pop the link in the video description so you can sign up. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of The Insight. I'm Laura Brown from Intelligence Fusion and this week I'm joined by Max Taylor, Raj Patney and Vincent Frevrier, all senior regional analysts here at IF. And this week we're taking a closer look at insurgencies across the globe, what makes an insurgency successful and in comparison why some can fail. We'll also take a look at the activity, tactics, ideologies behind various insurgency groups from each region to better understand if these are the defining factors that can actually help them succeed. So first of all, starting us off this week, we are going over to Max, who's given us a definition of actually what an insurgency is. Yeah, thanks, Laura. I think before we can even move on to what makes them successful or not successful, it is important to define what they actually are, because it is quite a vague term. But generally, as a group, we understand it as uh, non-state violent actors that are opposed to the recognised government. So as as we just mentioned, this is very broad, but then it, the more specific the definition gets, the more contradictions there are and the more cases you find that just don't quite fit with the definition. So it's best to keep it as this. And it gets more complicated as well when you start to bring in the, um, attempted definitions of terrorism because the term itself can't really be defined. And terrorism and insurgency are often very close, if not the same. So not all insurgent groups are terrorist groups. It depends who recognises them as terrorist groups. But generally, insurgencies differ from terrorism groups in that they're, they're normally they're more localised and they're more restricted to a single country or perhaps two countries, whereas terrorism groups often have a more international aspect to them. But again, this is quite vague and it's not always the case. There are some insurgencies that are international groups. So it's best not to go into too much detail here, but the, a, a vague definition such as non-state actors seems to be our best approach, I think. Yeah, and I think there's definitely, uh, when looking at terrorism versus insurgency, I think insurgencies probably have uh, a larger kind of uh, political goal or political, and we see that often with group, these insurgent groups uh, having political wings and taking uh, political activities uh, to try to uh, establish their goal uh, further along. Yeah, that's a good point, actually. So you've got groups like the New People's Army in the Philippines who are a militant wing of a political organization. So, yeah, that's, that's quite a common theme. Yeah, I think like in the history, so you said the, the NPA in the Philippines and I think uh, came out kind of as the arm wing of the Communist Party. And I think we've seen that as well in Latin America uh, with several groups coming out, kind of the FARC or ELN kind of or EPL in Colombia kind of coming out from uh, Communist Party and that, that ideology and then uh, becoming kind of taking up arms uh, to push their goal, uh, but then kind of splitting off and trying their own political, uh, par- establishing their own political parties or or taking matters into their own hands uh, rather than sticking to uh, the political party side. Yeah, I, I agree with that, yeah. So I think 
in defining what actually makes them successful, I've I've come I've put together six factors which I found generally tend to be the the recurring themes among insurgencies. I think it's really important not to try and lump all insurgencies in as one and treat them all as the same. Each one has nuanced differences, as Vincent was just saying. They they there is parallels, but there's differences as well. So it's important to see them separately in their own right. But with that said, there are parallels, and I think I've noticed in my own work that these following categories coming up so first is domestic support so support from the population or at least just passive sympathy it doesn't have to be active support just some form of uh of support uh foreign support normally from foreign states but it can also come from foreign non-state groups whether it be financial support weapons or even logistics and personnel terrain and geography so if there's remote highlands or forest and jungle areas which uh, militants and insurgents can can find cover in then this generally helps but again it, uh, every country is different so the terrain varies a weak central government i think this is important because a strong central government can crack down on militant groups and before they gather the momentum they need to overthrow that government whereas weak central governments struggle for legitimacy and as a result gives these insurgent groups an opening to start exploiting i think a weak economic situation as well is really important uh, so the weaker the economy, I think the more likely people are to take up arms and the more likely that people are going to support anti-government groups as people get tired with the government who they see as responsible for the weak economic situation. And lastly, and I think this one's more important as as time goes on and technology improves, is information dissemination. So the, uh, how well a group disseminates its narrative to the people of that country and even international audiences. And I think Perhaps this isn't as important as other ones such as domestic and foreign support, but no doubt this sixth and final one, information dissemination, I do think is a really important part of a modern insurgency. Yeah, and I, well, I think we should probably look at some of these more specifically with examples uh, from groups. Um, but I think like, so you talked about kind of domestic support, um, and I think there can be the benevolent support of the populace uh, because those insurgent groups um, provide social uh, benefits uh, provide things that the government uh, can't provide or hasn't provided. Uh, but then we can also see that uh, insurgent groups often uh, commit terror attacks. And so as a means to kind of force uh, popular support uh, support from the population uh, by scaring them in a way, using fear. Uh, so I think there's kind of two different strands uh, to, to that support. And I think different groups um, undertake different means um, to, to gain that support. I think we see it... Uh, to varying degrees in different countries um, as well. Yeah, I think broadly speaking, there are you know internal and external factors that you know contribute to whether uh, insurgencies are more effective or more successful. Mm. I think uh, we can look at, in terms of internal factors, we can look at uh, support and structure. So you know during the Cold War, you had insurgent groups uh, that relied on you know the support of uh, either the Soviet Union or the US, and uh, I think now overt military action is uh, something that's more likely to, you know, sort of garner a, a stronger international, maybe military response. So that's less likely now. Uh, I think today non-state groups uh, have developed uh, networks of mutual support, uh, including links to organized crime. And they've also taken up more uh, decentralized structures. Uh, so, you know, this type of structure is much more resilient than centralized structures and uh, much more harder to defeat. It makes uh, internal groups much more harder to defeat. I think the larger, more established organizations, they have uh, you know different categories of personnel as well. So you have 
uh, you know, the logistics side, you have the intelligence, you have uh, combat, uh, you have counterintelligence as well. So when you look at groups such as, you know, Al-Shabaab, you have, uh, you know, the intelligence unit within Al-Shabaab that plays a key role in its success. Uh, what about leadership? Do you think that's, uh, you know, a key factor for its success? Yeah, I think that's actually a really good question because certain groups vary, as we've already mentioned. But uh, what you were saying about a decentralized leadership, I think, is really key because especially now with uh, U.S. drone programs targeting leaders quite quite frequently in, in various countries, it's important to be able to adapt and survive without certain members of your key leadership. So I've seen with uh, with other groups, uh, take some of the first example, actually, the Afghan Taliban. They're a really interesting group because they, are, they have got a centralized leadership in the form of a, a central shura. And these people have been involved in the peace talks going on with the U.S. government. But at the same time, the Taliban is also at times quite essential, a decentralized movement. So whilst this leadership is carrying out these talks in, in, with the U.S. government and the Afghan government, meanwhile in Afghanistan, you've got multiple local level commanders who have their, uh, quite large, uh, have their own agency to do what they want to an extent. And they operate relatively freely. So they, they adhere to the, the broader um, uh, the broader protocols set forward by the main leadership, but at the same time, they're not relying on it. So they have got, their, as you said, uh, mutual networks. They have got their own mutual networks of uh, whether it be criminal groups or other militants or whatever it may be. So it's often said in the news that the Taliban are quite heavily related to the drugs, drugs uh, trade. And a lot of people will often try and say that the Taliban are the drugs trade, which isn't strictly true. In some cases it is, in some cases it isn't. In some places, the Taliban simply works with local drugs traders or extorts money from drugs traders to, uh, and allows them to operate in their territory. It's a, it's a very complicated relationship, which I don't want to go into too much detail. But yeah, so this decentralized leadership where people are, in, to, to an extent, these Taliban commanders at a local level are self-sufficient, has been really important in what's made the Taliban so resilient. So I think talking about um, kind of a decentralized structures, uh, the ELN's got um, similar... similar uh, structure in terms of they have kind of a core um, core group of leadership uh, which handles mostly the political aspects. Uh, so whether there's a peace negotiation with the government, um, which took place initially uh, in Ecuador, but then moved, got moved to Cuba and then completely kind of put off uh, early 2019 uh, after they committed um, a vehicle bombing in Bogota. Um, but like you said, with the Taliban having kind of uh, different fronts, I suppose, uh, with different leadership, with different goals. It's the same thing in Colombia. These fronts of ELN uh, kind of take part in the criminal economy, whether it be drug trafficking, whether it be illegal mining um, uh, or other means uh, to kind of fund themselves. And they ha- kind of have, like you said, that agency to kind of take uh, decisions on their own uh, to for, for their economy on how to benefit themselves or even military action. Uh, but I think we do see without the strong... Um, hierarchy, some weaknesses in that horizontal structure, just because we've, in Colombia at least, I've seen there's several fronts, whether it be VLN or uh, FARC dissidents, uh, which were remnants of the FARC group uh, that demobilized in 2016, who are now infighting uh, and fighting each other for control of the territory, uh, control of the criminal economy, um, drug producing lands, drug labs, uh, and things of that nature. So in a way, uh, because these groups have moved uh, kind of away, they're still kind of guided by ideology, but now it seems that they're more focused on uh, the criminal economy. Uh, they're just, yeah, they, it's it's led to more infighting between each other, um, so in a way weakening kind of the overall group in a way. Um, 
But yes, yeah, so I, I wonder if you've seen that within kind of infighting within specific groups or anything like that with insurgencies within your group. Yeah, I find it particularly common actually. So within the Taliban, it's um, again, it's quite complicated. They're a complicated country, complicated group. But within the Taliban, you've got uh, Splinter Faction, which is headed by a man called Mullah Rasul, and he's claims to be a different part of the Taliban, but essentially they are two different factions, and they've they infrequent clashes. And you see it with the Houthi rebels as well. Uh, Yemeni media often reports quite minor clashes, but again, they're they're really they're really related to the ideology, as you said. It's more often about practical issues on the ground, whether that be a tribal dispute or it's simply something along the lines of taxation of of drugs traders at a market or something along those lines. So, yeah, these clashes do occur, but generally, I find groups such as the Houthis and the Afghan of Afghan Taliban have been able to weather weather the storm here and sort of and still maintain some form of cohesion. But I think we've spoken a bit about um, successful insurgencies. It'd be quite interesting to speak about what makes insurgencies fail or at least what uh, what causes them to be less successful. Because it's hard to... I find with insurgencies, it's hard to determine them as entirely unsuccessful. Because simply, uh, if an insurgency exists, it's experiencing some fo- some form of, ex- of a success to an extent. Because its mere existence means that the government's failed. So its mere existence is, therefore, to an extent, a victory. But uh, so it's easier to, I think, with insurgencies to measure how successful they were. So I did a bit of a looking back in history. And one uh, case, one historical case of an insurgency that is generally considered to have failed is the Malayan insurgency. So if we go through these six factors we mentioned earlier, so the, the Malayan insurgency, it, it, which was between 1948 and 1960, it lacked domestic support because it was largely it was a communist insurgency in a country where communism simply hadn't uh, hadn't attracted a lot of support. Uh, it had some foreign support from China, but not much. Uh, and they were facing the the British the British government at the time in in the Cold War era. So very it was very much it was a polarized world. So a lot of people were reluctant to face the British backed by the Americans. Uh, they they actually had this is an interesting one. They actually had quite good terrain. They they hid out in jungle areas, um, but the British uh, forces and the Malaysian forces were able to, in some ways, take this advantage away from them because this was a period before media was was widespread. So they used a lot of measures to limit their access to the terrain that just simply wouldn't be acceptable these days. Uh, weak central government again. The Malay, Malayan government at the time was fairly strong, and an, and the economic situation was also fairly strong because the rubber trade um, from Malaya was quite strong because of the Korean War. So there's a high demand for rubber. And information dissemination, the communist insurgents in Malaya did very poorly. So of these six factors, they they achieved some. So there was some success. And the fact that they existed is also, again, as we said, means that it wasn't a total failure. And it's also important to look at the dates that this insurgency took place between 1948 and 1960. That's quite a long insurgency. Um, this, isn't, this wasn't a short conflict. So to say that they were a complete failure seems... A little premature, but I do think they they didn't quite have the success as a group that we've mentioned already. Yeah, and I think from my end, uh, I, I looked at a few, um, but it's it's like you said, it's it's hard to uh, define, I guess, a failing insurgency versus a successful one because I think the threshold for success is different depending on the group, depending on the region. Uh, but I guess one example uh, might be the Brigade Twenty Five Zero Six, which were a group of Cuban exiles. Um, which uh, were trained uh, by the CIA and which their goal was to overthrow the Fidel Castro regime uh, in Cuba. Um, and they were the group uh, that took part in the Bay of Pigs invasion where we saw uh, several um, hundred, uh, hundreds die uh, as well, but mostly the group was captured uh, and then exchanged back to the U.S. in exchange for food uh, and medicine. 
so I guess that that would be the the closest I, I could find uh, to to a failure in that it didn't ultimately achieve this goal. But I think you made the, the point that uh, early on the kind of they were backed by conventional forces and, and things like that. So could that actually be considered an insurgency or not? But I think the overall goal is similar to what we see uh, to to modern day and common insurgency uh, groups. Mm. I agree with that, yes. Yeah. Um, so I think, you know, in terms of external factors, you know, they, they can also <clears throat> sort of contribute to, you know, again, whether insurgencies are more successful or unsuccessful. <clears throat> I think uh, with terrain, you know, like you mentioned, you know, I think it's important consideration, you know, both the type and the size of the terrain in which the groups operate. I think the understanding, if if the group has a you know good understanding or familiarity with the terrain in which they they operate, I think this uh, you know, I think this is important. If they do, it's you know they're much more likely to succeed in their actions. You know, so in Africa you have insurgent groups that have established uh, bases in forested areas. You know, these are rugged areas that are you know difficult to access uh, and to control by you know government government security forces. I think large areas are also difficult to control by the government, and uh, there's the added challenge of securing uh, territory, including villages, which are often in you know remote areas. I think uh, another important thing is uh, you know government action. Uh, I think insurgent groups they benefit from weak governments with limited capabilities and capacities. I think uh, what they need to do, what military, what militaries need to do more is. Uh, what they have to ensure that they do is uh, not just focus on the military aspect of it, but also this, the civic action. So the you know the application of, for example, of you know basic service delivery and actions taken to address any long-standing grievances to reduce the you know the support base for insurgent groups. I think if governments do this, then they you know will sort of weaken insurgent groups. Or, I mean, ideally, you do this you know. To prevent insurgencies from, you know, taking place, but you know, if you look at Mozambique, for example, you know, there have been long-standing grievances around uh, economic development in Cabo Delgado uh, and social and political exclusion, which has stretched back decades. And I think uh, this is also, you know, in a region which is the, mo- the poorest in in Mozambique. And I think more more recently, there have been frustration, you know, among youth. Uh, in the region, with unemployed unemployment within the extractive industry, so I mean, essentially, it's about winning hearts and minds, you know, for the long term, and not just the short term. Uh, otherwise, insurgent groups will exploit this. You know, I think another factor that has sort of helped the cause of insurgent groups in uh, Africa, you know, if you look at the Sahel, you, you know, there have been hundreds of civilians that have been killed so far this year in uh, Mali, Burkina Faso, and Niger by security forces, uh, you know, that have accused these people of uh, colluding with uh, uh, these insurgents, uh, jihadist insurgents. I think this is also now, uh, you know, a growing problem in Mozambique as well. So I think, yeah, this is something that government needs to, you know, take into consideration. Otherwise, uh, yeah, I think it helps the cause of insurgent groups. You brought up a really good point there, actually, is uh, the role of the counterinsurgents and the military-civilian balance within a counterinsurgency. And I think that's actually a really good point because 
one of the reasons actually is in the Malayan insurgency failed was the counterinsurgents and the British were known for using for seeing a lot of the insurgency as a police problem rather than a military problem which allowed them to take a slightly different approach and again it wasn't it wasn't perfect but it was the start of what became a general theme among counterinsurgents is to start trying to incorporate things such as social development because at the end of the day an insurgency whilst yes it's a violent conflict it is also uh, it's a violent manifestation of an idea and in Afghanistan, for example, that idea is the idea which underlies the Taliban, and you can't really shoot an idea. So this, that's where things such as social development, policing, and a, a strong uh, central government is so important. So we, we've listed these six, you know, what makes this, uh, insurgency successful. But at the end of the day, if, if the ideology resonates with the people of that country and the government's doing very little to address the underlying reasons that is resonating with their population, then really the, the the insurgency doesn't have to do very much it's, they just have to let the government lose rather than that the insurgency has to try and win so i think without social development you're only ever going to have short-term fixes and i think that's something that uh militaries especially in the 21st century have really found to be a, a difficult problem because countries such as the usa where you've got four-year terms strategy is very much built in four-year bounds so for example uh presidents are very reluctant to to introduce a strategy that may that benefits of which they won't see in four years time and normally social development takes a lot more than four years to actually see any positive gains i think like you said um so social development government needs to undertake that to try to uh, counter the insurgency uh, but i think that's also linked to say territories so a lot of these insurgents groups operate in rural areas uh, forested areas jungle areas uh, so in colombia uh, a lot of these groups um, have control of large swaths of territory, whether it's the southwest uh, or the northeast uh, areas where there's also oil uh, oil and gas. And so companies that operate in that area uh, are often targeted by uh, these insurgent groups, uh, whether it be extortion, whether it be pipeline uh, being blown up. Uh, so I think the insurgents uh, can also often target these social development programs. Um, as a means to kind of push back the government and bring back the populace to a certain level of discomfort to where they then come back towards uh, insurgents for uh, benefits um, and and social development on that end. Um, So I think you mentioned the NPA earlier in the podcast. So uh, they've also, from from looking at them, they've also targeted construction projects uh, or development projects within their areas of control uh, because that's where these groups kind of get the main support is from uh, the poor uh, sectors of, of the population in more rural areas. Uh, so the more delay they can put on those social development projects, uh, the best for them in terms of uh, achieving their goals. Absolutely, yeah. So I think to, to wrap it up then, I guess, um, the six points we label at the start, the domestic support, foreign support, terrain, central government, economy and information, I think have generally held firm in, when we look for parallels within what makes these groups strong so you were saying the mpa you know their their control of um of the economic situation for example and i think as we said at the start you know all these groups that we've mentioned in this in this chat have been very different and they all have to be observed with very unique and you know nuanced analysis of each one but it is interesting how we've seen these same six factors do seem to be a recurring theme as among the ones which make it successful i think so i know from those points and things like like what course of action do you think the current groups that are currently operating in your region whether it be africa or more middle east or asia do you think what does the future hold for them do you think do is there are they going to still have the ability to continue the fight or are there some groups that you think are 
weakening and aren't going to be able to be uh, sustained in the long run. Uh, so I think from, from my region, uh, we got VELN in Colombia and their insurgency uh, has gained strength over the last few years because the, the FARC, uh, which was the largest group at the time, demobilized in 2016. And the ELN kind of took over control of a lot of the territory they, uh, that the FARC used to have, uh, which was drug producing land. So the ELN's making off quite nicely, I guess, with uh, territory, uh, with the ability to uh, make money off drugs, off illegal mining. Uh, and yes, they're still fighting the government, they're fighting right wing paramilitaries, uh, but they're also. Uh, have ability to operate within Venezuela, uh, the neighboring country on the border area, because Venezuelan government's not really talking with the Colombian government, so there's no, uh, and they've been known to support kind of left-wing guerrillas uh, who've operated in Colombia. So I think for in terms of ELN, um, yes, there was talks of, a, uh, of there was peace talks uh, in 2018, uh, 2019, uh, that kind of broke off, um, and I don't see them kind of restarting, uh, at least in the near term, um, but I think there's other groups, uh, so like the Sendero Luminoso, uh, the Shining Path in Peru, uh, they've dropped in influence significantly since kind of the mid-90s, uh, and their area of control uh, has shrunk to kind of just a, a single kind of area in, in, in Peru, in central Peru, uh, the, the VRAEM region, uh, and they've kind of become kind of like most guerrilla groups in Latin America, but less ideology, but more kind of as a drug trafficking uh, a group, uh, and I think if if Peru has the military capacity and the government capacity to kind of implement those social projects, those economic projects, there could be a shot at kind of uh, very weakening the group uh, even further, if not eradicating it. Um, and then there's there's smaller groups uh, within Paraguay with the EPP, uh, which continue actions but are, are still quite small and could uh, be eradicated with the right measures. Um, but yeah, I was wondering if, it, based on the insurgent groups within your region, kind of how do you see the, the near future be uh, for those groups, and do they provide specific threats to uh, businesses or anything like that within your region in the near term? So if I had to pick one that I think has done particularly well, and I think its future looks quite strong as, a, as an insurgent movement, I would say uh, the Taliban seem to have achieved quite a lot in the re- previous years of, of fighting. So since the US and allied intervention, the Taliban have very much weathered the storm and there were times when they, they really struggled and then they've made a quite significant resurgence now to the extent that they've actually engaged in uh, diplomatic talks with the US government and the Afghan government. So I'd say they've achieved uh, relatively quite a lot of success there. Um, and I'd say on the other end of the spectrum, the Syrian rebels, I think, represent a really interesting uh, insurgent group that perhaps has been, I wouldn't say unsuccessful, they've they've the war has been quite prolonged and they've, they still exist with quite some strength today. But the Syrian rebels is a, is a series of multiple different rebel groups. And the rebel-held pocket in the Idlib province re- region now is seen infighting between these groups, so between Hayat Tahir al-Sham and the al-Qaeda-affiliated Hura Saudin. So there's been infighting, like we mentioned earlier. We spoke about the damages of infighting. And as a result, the, 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 um, the Syrian rebels have generally seen their territory shrink and shrink. And I think the Syri- and they, they're, they're starting to lack reliable foreign support. So they're not quite ticking all the boxes that we've seen that make in successful insurgent movements. So I think you've got the, so the Taliban perhaps more successful and the Syrian rebels are looking not unsuccessful, but less successful, I would say. So we have seen uh, a spread of fighting. So geographically, you know, the geographical expansion of fighting in the you know Sahel region, for example. Uh, so we had 
recent attacks uh, in northern Ivory Coast, which is, I think, the first time since 2016, for example, you know, and then I think there are concerns that, uh, I think the UN are saying that, you know, there are concerns that Burkina Faso could be the next uh, Iraq or Syria. And then in Mali as well, we've had, you know, more attacks uh, in the west of the country. So I think this also together with, you know, things like climate change, you know, which impact livelihoods, I think these kind of things, you know, they bring further challenges to the government. And uh, in Mozambique too, you know, this is a group that seems to be growing stronger as well. Uh, and on top of that, they have foreign fighters as well. So, you know, we could see an expansion into maybe southern Tanzania, for example, uh, and uh, south uh, towards the, the regional capital of Pemba. So, yeah, I'd say it's uh, it's a growing concern. I think these insurgent groups will remain for the coming years. And so from a, a business perspective, I know that you've, Vincent, mentioned, you know, attacks on pipelines and things like that. In your regions and, and, and with these groups, are there any other particular kind of sectors or actual businesses that are affected by, by their activity? I think it's a good question. Um, at, at a general level, across all insurgencies, obviously an insurgency brings insecurity. So yeah, that has obvious implications on business in any country. But I think each insurgency has a different impact on business. So Vincent's mentioned pipelines and certain insurgencies targeting businesses in that way. Whereas another insurgency might try and support pipelines. So for example, the Taliban have tried to act, have actually tried to support the TAPI pipeline, which is a pipeline running to Afghanistan. So there's some business, so each insurgency has different impacts on business. So I find a common theme though is a lot of businesses have to, whilst uh, secretly they have to actually negotiate with local militant groups, especially if they have a lot of territorial control. But they can't be seen to be publicly publicly doing that because that seems as undermining the government. So there's, it's a very a lot of times a very complicated relationship between business and insurgents because sometimes they're targeted and sometimes they're supported. So uh, I think the the sectors that have been most affected uh, are oil and gas in you know Mozambique. Uh, but you have, you know, the extractive industries in Burkina Faso, you know, mining companies, uh, but also NGOs. Uh, I think they've had to change the ways, you know, that they operate, uh, you know, so less road transport because of ambushes, the risk of ambushes. Uh, also, we had uh, NGO workers kidnapped uh, a few weeks ago uh, in Niger as well. So kidnapped for ransom remains a, a concern. Yeah, and I think uh, regarding my region, so uh, yeah, I did mention uh, so the ELN targeting uh, oil and gas pipelines, um, particularly in the departments of Nariño, uh, Aroca, and Norte de Santander in Colombia. Um, but they've also kidnapped oil workers uh, and just the threat to logistics companies in regards to IED, roadside IEDs, uh, threats to telecom sector because of uh, they've been... There's been several attacks on uh, cell phone towers or tel- telephone poles or, or things of that nature. So public infrastructure, uh, which then could put at risk uh, employees that are going to repair the, that infrastructure. Um, and then if we consider uh, the Mapuche kind of militants in Chile um, as an insurgency, and that group is asking for juridis- jurisdictional autonomy, uh, return of ancestral lands, and kind of uh, um, support around their cultural identity. Uh, so if we consider that as an insurgency, um, they often target uh, agri- forestry companies uh, with um, just arson attacks on their vehicles, um, as well as kind of energy pro- uh, projects by protesting or anything like that. So there's quite a variety of sectors that can be affected. And I think, like Max said, 
uh, all these insurgencies bring insecurity uh, in, in that areas. And a lot of these companies, especially uh, mineral extraction or oil and gas, kind of are often in remote places uh, where these insurgencies control a lot of territory and uh, yield a lot of influence. Um, so like Max said, there's could also be extortion um, of these companies that, that work in that sector. Uh, so it's always a concern for businesses. Absolutely. And I think, like you've all kind of said, it goes without saying that these um, insurgencies can bring um, significant kind of threats to businesses, regardless of, of the region. Um, but yeah, thank you very much, team, for this week's insight. Uh, and thank you very much for our listeners for tuning in. Uh, we'd love your feedback on the new structure. So please leave us a comment. Let us know what you thought about the episode. Uh, if you enjoyed it as well, please like and share it with your network. And if you're not yet subscribed, don't forget to hit the subscribe button before you go. Thanks very much and see you next time.